0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to
1: supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College
0: Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Well, hello, and welcome back to The Commons, part of the Circe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, Welcome to episode two of season two of The Commons. This season, we are focusing on important figures and movements in church history. On episode one, I was joined by Wes Callahan. We talked about St. John Chrysostom, one of the most influential and skilled preachers in uh, the early church. This time around, I have uh, with me Greg Wilbur, who is the Dean of the Chapel and Dean of the College at New College Franklin. Uh, He is also a um, uh, chief musician at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville there. Um, Greg is also a frequent speaker at Searcy Conferences, and so I'm delighted to have him with us as we talk about another very important early church father, this time uh, St. Ambrose. And uh, Ambrose was called, as you will discover in this episode, um, was considered to be one of the most talented, most skilled uh, of the early Church Fathers. And so uh, we're going to talk about all of the different ways in which his his uh, gifts were shown in the office of Bishop, uh, and then focus in a little bit on one of Greg Wilber's great um, strengths, and that is music. How did St. Ambrose influence music in the early church, and how has that influence uh, been carried over even into modern-day practices in the church? So it's a great episode. Thank you all for joining me. Hope you enjoy it. Now joined uh, by Greg Wilbur from New College Franklin. Well, Greg Wilbur, it's great to have you back on the Commons. Uh, Thank you for joining me for this episode. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. In this season on the Commons, we're we're talking about major figures and movements in, in church history, and um, you know, last time, this has been some time ago now, when you were on the Commons, we talked about Bach, and so we're going to get into music a little bit um, in this episode as well, but we're focusing in on an early church father, uh, St. Ambrose, who contributed to church music, certainly, as we will be talking about, but uh, contributed so much more as well. So delighted to have you with me to discuss, uh, particularly when we get into music and how Ambrose transformed church music. Right. Now, in preparing for this episode, I had done some reading about St. Ambrose, just kind of one to refresh my memory on some things that maybe I'd read in years past, and then also in... um, uh, seeing if there were things that I had completely been unaware of. And and I found some of both, you know, some things that I <laughs> knew and some things that were brand new. But one one writer that I ran across uh, referred to St. Ambrose as the most talented bishop of the early church. Um, and that is, that's a very big claim. In fact, the first episode of this season I recorded with um, Wes Callahan, we talked about St. John Chrysostom. So when you're Immediately comparing Ambrose to to men like chrysostom that's a very tall yes. order yeah um so let's let's kind of start from the beginning and we'll <laughs> we'll set the stage of just sort of an overview of who Ambrose was um he was uh he was from my understanding he was from a pretty prominent Christian family which was unusual uh for these early yes. early church bishops um it, it, and he didn't start his career in the church. Uh, so what, talk to us a little bit about what Ambrose did initially and, and how he eventually came to the office of, of
1: being a bishop. Yes, it was a very prominent family and a uh, had been Christian for several generations, um, which was also interesting from that time period. His father was a, a prefect in uh, Trier, which is modern day Germany, and um, that's where Ambrose was born, somewhere around 340 Um uh, he was the third child. There was an older sister and an older brother. Uh, his father died um, when he was about 13 or 14, and um, and so the mother, his, Ambrose's mother, moved the family uh, back to Rome. And uh, it's there that he started his education. And um, um, this is a, this is an important part of understanding Ambrose because all of this comes into play later on with with his various roles. But he studied rhetoric, and um, he studied. He studied Greek and the Greek authors, which was significant because this was a period in time in which the knowledge of Greek was beginning to disappear in the Western empire, Western part of the empire. And so the, the fact that he achieved a significant proficiency in, in Greek and in the classics, uh, Homer, Plato, etc., cetera, um, became very important later on. So he started his career as a lawyer and uh, he was noted for his eloquence, he was noted for his, his energy, uh, passed the bar and was appointed to a political post in Rome. Um, since the early part of the fourth century, of course, Rome, um, the imperial court had moved out of Rome to Milan. Um, it was still kind of the historical heart, but not not the political center. Um, so after, after serving in a political post in Rome, he was noticed by Valentinian I, the emperor, and then called him to Milan to serve as the governor of Northern Italy. So that put him in a prominent position um, next to and around the imperial, um, imperial government. He was about mm-hmm. 30 years old at the time, so still very young. Right, right. So so he's serving as governor in, uh, in the northern part of Italy, um, centered in Milan. Uh, at that time, there was a lot of, 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 of religious toleration with regards to Arianism, and I know we'll get to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the, uh, the Arian-leaning bishop who had been uh, in that post for 20 years died and um, it was an opportunity to to elect to recommend a new bishop, and so the Arian forces got together, and the, the Trinitarian, the Catholic forces got together, and it got rather heated in terms of this discussion of um, of who should be the next bishop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so, as governor of the area, Ambrose gets called in to to bring the peace, and uh, he comes and he, he comes before the crowd, and uh, he he calms them and he begins to speak. Um, and this is where fact and legend gets a little fuzzy. Uh, but most of the uh, most of the reports are that he was standing in the place where the bishop would normally stand. And the most colorful stories is that a child's voice rang out and said, "Ambrose is bishop," because he was standing where the bishops would normally stand. And it was like a hush fell on the crowd, and then both sides started this um, um, this chant, this call to make him bishop wow um, so he, he was a catechumen at the time you know, as we said before a prominent christian family but in practice at the time he had not actually been baptized right and so yeah so he's like okay you know he was very reluctant because here he is in this political career and he said uh, uh there were two things he thought would save him from this from potentially becoming bishop one was the uh, um the ecclesiastical side of things because there was a decree Prohibited newly the newly baptized from being ordained,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so he thought, well, you know, that that will at least keep him from becoming baptized and then ordained quickly, um, and that was he, he quipped that uh, emotion had overruled canon law because um, people would know this, but the the, uh, the the election had to be ratified by the bishops, and they thought they would reject it, but uh, on the contrary, they thought he was a perfect candidate. Wow! Uh, and then the other the other side of things was that he he didn't think that the emperor would want to lose him as governor. Um, and so he actually went and hid in the home of a, um, one of his friends who was a senator, um, until the senator got word that the emperor had decided that he could think of no better, no better, uh, candidate for the, for the role of bishop than his governor. And at that point, Ambrose's friend, the senator pushed him out and, uh, <laughs> and Ambrose relented and said, okay, okay, I'll do this. So he, um. Uh, he went through a very quick process within a period of a week, being baptized and then ordained as a priest and bishop, um, which happened uh, on December 7th in, uh, in 374. Um, and so he had, he had a lot to do in terms of uh, catching up um, with regards to his studies. This is where part of um, uh, where his study of Greek came in handy. Um, we don't have the Vulgate at this point in time. There's some translation of various books, but he, because he knows Greek, he can read the New Testament in Greek. Um, he can also read Athanasius and Origen and Basil and other works that had not been translated uh, from Greek into Latin, um, and that he set himself to study and to prepare and to equip himself to preach, and uh, which became a, a really a center part of um, of his ministry there in, in Milan, um, as well as he made himself remarkably accessible to the people, uh, all people. Uh, no matter what 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 stage, what what um, what socioeconomic background, um, and so he had a kind of an open door policy. So he would study and pray in between the times uh, in which people would come to him for pastoral needs. Uh, he did have two caveats, though: uh, one that he would not get involved in matchmaking, mm-hmm. and two that he would not uh, uh, not help somebody along to a political post. But regards to any other um, any other. Ecclesiastical and pastoral needs. He made himself incredibly accessible. So he, when he so when he became bishop, he also gave away uh, much of his fortune. When he became bishop, he embraced it wholeheartedly, despite the reticence at the beginning. Um, but then he served. He served the people well.
0: Now, um, if we can back up for just a second, that um, one of the things that I I, would, I just wanted to throw out and see if if this is one of those examples of where. Um, myth and fact might might mm-hmm. differ a little bit um, one at least one account that I read mentioned that that the emperor who uh, I believe it was Theodosius wasn't it at, at the time well maybe not, Valentinian, maybe not when first. He, or Valentinian that's right Theodosius is later sorry um, mm-hmm. but uh, I think the emperor didn't he threaten Ambrose that, that until he agreed to be bishop that he would be imprisoned if necessary
1: um <laughs> Did you, have you uh, run across that at all? Is it? I, I have. There, there's another. Yeah, number of interesting stories. Um, um, with regards to uh, the role of, of, of um, the emperor and the bishop, um, um, you know, it's an interesting relationship. And there's uh, some other things we can tease out here in a little bit. Um, but they were. Um, he was. He was Catholic, but very religiously tolerant. Um, and so, you know, the fact that you would want him to take this role um, and have him this position of authority doesn't surprise me. But I haven't come across that particular story.
0: Um, yeah, the the reason I ask is um, that, as uh, I talked with Wes Callahan in the episode on John Chrysostom, um, that Chrysostom showed a similar reluctance in upon entering mm-hmm. the priesthood. And in fact, he had had an agreement with a friend of his that, that they would both enter the priesthood, um, if called to do so, but then Chrysostom backed out and ran away and (laughs) and had to, you know, I mean, he essentially ran for his life. Um, and so I thought, oh my goodness, uh, did Ambrose do essentially the same thing? He had to be, uh, uh, taken, you know, kicking and screaming into the bishopric, um, so that's why that's why I was wondering. But either way, there was certainly some reluctance, which I find really right. humorous. As as a pastor myself, and you you uh, serve in church ministry as well, so uh, there might be part of both of us that goes, "Yeah, I get it," you know.
1: <laughs> some, yes,
0: some some days are better than others, and uh, other days yes. it's kicking and screaming, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, okay, so now thank you for humoring me there with that. Um, but now when he when he was appointed bishop um as as you mentioned um part of it was you know might have been right place right time or from Ambrose's perspective maybe wrong place wrong time at, at the time but mm-hmm. um but he he seemed to be pretty well respected well loved um yes at least liked um but of course he wasn't without some controversy once he became a bishop and and of course in that kind of position it's impossible to not have some controversy but um let's let's go back to the arians as you mm-hmm. you mentioned them earlier um, so let's just kind of uh lay this out in real general terms let's start who were the arians and then and then uh, how did Ambrose respond to them when he became bishop
1: mm-hmm. yeah uh, arianism was one of the major heresies of the 4th century um, interestingly it was on the decline at the time that Ambrose became bishop but Milan was still one of its last strongholds uh, and that was because of some of the the um, movement of, of the emperors and some of their thoughts um, but they were they were called for their lead proponent Arius um, basically denied the concept of the trinity that, that uh, Jesus was created by God um, so there was a kind of a hierarchy within the context of of um, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, such that the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea and the drafting and the adoption of the Nicene Creed was, was directly uh, to counteract and reject the ideas of Arius and a proactive declaration of what the Trinity is uh, and what it means to be um, in that um, the clarification of what the Godhead is in the relationship between, between the three. Mm-hmm. And so there's a... As I said before, he was following a, a Arian-leaning bishop who had been there for, for 20 years. And, um, and so there's a lot of religious tolerance within, um, within Milan for Arianism and within the emperor and his family. Um, interestingly, his brother, satyrus, who also was a governor in, a, in another area, once Ambrose was elected as bishop, he quit his position and moved to Milan— Um, To help take care of the administrative duties of the diocese so that Ambrose could concentrate on pastoral duties because he knew that there would be much to do with regards to um, um, rooting out the rest of Arianism in that area. And that's two of the great things that Ambrose did in terms of the end of paganism um, in in the Roman area, as well as rooting out the last vestiges of of Arian thought. But part of this is wrapped up in... um, the, the secession of um, of emperors and um, w- without getting too cloudy enough details uh, this is uh, I think kind of interesting and important to see how some of these things played out as I said Valentinian I was the one who appointed him governor of the area he was killed in battle in uh, the northern frontier he had uh, two sons um, half brothers one Gratian he named as co-emperor and uh uh, his other was Valentinian II. So when Valentinian I was killed, Gratian um, moved to take over as, as uh, from his position as co-emperor. But the army supported Valentinian II as emperor, and at the time he was only four years old. And so it was really it was really Valentinian's mother uh, Justina who was holding the power reins. So Gratian continued to the north, and he controlled Britain and Spain and Gaul. And had a good relationship with Ambrose. Uh, Italy was controlled by Valentinian II, but really his mother, um, who was who was a very staunch Arian, and um, and that's where a lot of the conflict came in. And uh, so she knew, as long as Gratian was alive, there's not much that she could do, uh, because in terms of the power uh, power struggle. So she just kind of bided her time for a while, but she kept kind of poking things. For example, she invited a, an Aryan bishop to reside as a member of the imperial court in Milan. So you have Ambrose <laughs> as the uh, ecclesiastical head of Milan. Right. Um, but, with, but within the imperial court, you have an Aryan bishop. Who doesn't have oh. a doesn't have a church, but has this has this uh, political role right. under the protection of the of the empress?
0: So he still had um, the title of a bishop, but just not the not a church to oversee. Well, right. Okay. So two bishops in the same city, one an Arian, one the greatest opponent of Arianism in the empire at the time. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> and
1: and one and one ecclesiastical and one political. Mm. Um, and that's and that's one of the things that we see too with. With the idea that, um, of, um, of seeing God as, um, as uh, non-trinitarian, that you lose this concept of relationship. And so within an area of thought, there was a lot of, of, of outworking with regards to um, the relationship between the church and the state, so that bishops were seen as the emperor's bishops, and uh, they could move them around as they so desired. Um, But with Trinitarian thought coming out of of Nicaea, um, the idea of of, of, um, various roles and responsibilities and seeing a separateness of the the structure of the church from the political structure Mm -hmm. gave Ambrose uh, a particular position on which to stand on, uh, on issues that arose between himself and between whoever was in control of the political sphere. And and one of those happened to be Justine at this point in time. Um, What happened is is that um, Gratian was left with the entire empire to defend. Um, And so he named Theodosius, who was a Spanish general and a Catholic, as Empire of the East to help him out. Uh, But about five years later, Gratian was assassinated. Um, Maximus, who was the, uh, the general, the treacherous general behind the assassination, then threatened to take over Italy and uh, to displace Valentinian II. Now, th- this is an interesting move here. So you've got you've got uh, um, uh, Gratian's former general, who's assassinated him, had him assassinated, and is about to take over Valentinian II area in uh, in, in Italy, where, where Ambrose is. So despite all the differences, uh, Justina goes to Ambrose and asks him to be an ambassador to Maximus to keep him from invading Italy. Hmm which he does.
0: Hmm.
1: And so here we have this fascinating instance of, uh, of a churchman mediating a political and military conflict. And so he goes to Maximus and Maximus does relent and uh, decides to leave Italy in peace and just continue um, settling more in the north. Um, so interestingly, by um, by doing so that also solidified Valentinian II and Justina's power uh, over the um, over Italy, and over, um, over Milan, um, but it also saved Italy from the invasion of Maximus. So, you know, so now Justina has this newfound um, opportunity and authority with Gratian out of the way. And so in, in 386, uh, she decides the time is right to give her imperial Arian bishop his own church. And so she demands that Ambrose hand over one of the basilicas in Milan for Arian worship which completely unacceptable to right. Ambrose. And, and the idea was that the, the, this bishop would celebrate his first Eucharist on Easter Day in um, in 386. So Ambrose refused. He, he, he reportedly said, um, I have said what a bishop ought to say. Let the emperor do what an emperor ought to do. Naboth would not give up the inheritance of the ancestor, and shall I give up that of Jesus Christ? Hmm. And so they, they get word that... Uh, just seen as sending in troops and so ambrose and uh, various members of his congregation uh, go to the basilica that they want to turn into an area and place of worship and they occupy it on palm sunday Um, and they stay in while surrounded outside by by the uh the soldiers they stay in uh, the basilica for a week uh, praying fasting singing um and as they're barricaded in one of the uh, one of the people there was monica augustine's mother um which is part of you know, augustine's connection to uh, to ambrose which right i'm sure we'll t- get to a little bit and so after a period of a week of a week um, um Justine, you know backs down and calls uh, uh calls the troops back um and saving ambrose then and, and the congregation saved uh, the basilica uh from, from Arian worship from hierarchical worship um Justina tried again a year later. <laughs> uh, she had her son issue a decree that legalized Aryan assemblies and made it a capital offense to interfere with them. So she she kind of hedging her bets this time that uh, let Ambrose interfere, we've we got him on a capital charge and can right. execute him. Yeah, significant significant game she's playing here. Yeah,
0: yeah. And this is this is after she asked Ambrose to intervene. Um, yes. So that she could have a more secure foundation to, to launch such (laughs) things against him. Right. I mean, yes, exactly. uh, Wow. No, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. So, so Ambrose called her bluff though. Once again, as you mentioned, he was very popular. He was, um, um, Arianism was on the wane, but still, still a force there. So he, he says to her, if you demand my person, I'm ready to submit, carry me to prison or to death. I will not resist, but I will never betray the Church of Christ. I will not call upon the people to protect me. I will die at the foot of the altar rather than desert it.
0: Hmm.
1: And so putting his life on the line, she knew that she couldn't get away with um, uh, enforcing uh, the decree, especially when the, uh, the troops that she had sent to enforce the decree uh, wound up inside the Catholic Church, praying along with the Catholics. Um, there was little hope for her enforcement she she completely backed down at that point um, and died soon afterwards and and that uh, the last major proponent especially from the political position of of pushing the agenda of Arianism was gone Um, and so the the victory was complete in that regard right
0: and and now Ambrose um this is not the only time when he he showed very um, very great courage um, in in the face of real threat. Um, there was an, another difficult confrontation that came later on um, with Emperor Theodosius, right? Yes, um, yes. So it, now Theodosius um, on the other side of this, you had uh, Justina, who was a, as an Arian, kind of an enemy of, of Ambrose uh but theodosius was the first emperor to um to declare or at least at least try uh to make rome a christian empire um i was mm-hmm. uh, constantine made it legal but theodosius wanted to make it official right the the right. um state religion if you will um <clears throat> but even, even he ended up in a conflict with Ambrose. So, um, so talk to us about that, because this this to me is one of the most fascinating stories. And, and I think it has, uh, very far reaching implications at the time. So, uh, what happened between Ambrose and Theodosius, uh, that caused this kind of standoff?
1: Yeah, there, there were a couple of things that are kind of prelude to this too. Um, uh, Theodosius had, um, um, he had, he had a very warm and cordial relationship with Ambrose, and so there was there was personal relationship there, which was um, which was important to them. Um, there were some practices in the East that were different from the West, and, and in some ways, um, uh, for for example, the emperor was allowed into various parts of of the sanctuary and church for church service for the Eucharist, uh, which should essentially be reserved for the priest. And um, so he to, tried to assert that right or that opportunity without know, knowing any different. And uh, Ambrose um, basically pulled him out and said, you know, there's a difference between um, the purple robes of, of the emperor and the priestly robes. You know, there's a division here between our various roles. And uh, he, he was very humble and he accepted that correction. You know, recognizing that things were done differently in the east um, than they had than they were in the West um, and partly because there was a cozy relationship that uh, emperors enjoyed with Arian bishops because of that uh, political influence um, but you know coming from the Trinitarian perspective and, and Nicaea Ambrose had a, a different separation of the idea of, of, of the authority of the church and the authority of the state so the, the big conflict they had, is that in, in Thessalonica there was a very popular um, charioteer, and um, he um, um, committed a sexual offense, sexual assault, uh, and the governor put him in put him in jail, put him in prison the night before a major chariot race, mm-hmm. and the people weren't happy about it. This sounds like, you know, you could be reading the story today.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, the, the, star, <laughs> the star athlete on academic probation kind of that, you know. <laughs> exactly
1: right. Yes. OK. Um, well, far it's a, more
0: serious than that. But yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, so the people, the people were not the people rebelled. They uh, they got him out of prison and they killed the governor and a few other uh, mm. the soldiers. And so uh, Theodosius was not happy and uh, sent instructions to the soldiers that when um, when people arrived at the circus for the next games, um, to lock the doors and kill them all, mm-hmm. and so they did, and they slaughtered seven thousand men, women, and children um, on that day. Um, he he actually sent another message revoking his initial order, but they got there too late, and so he he'd killed you know, seven had seven thousand men, women, and children killed, and. Um, and then after that became known, I mean, very, obviously a very public, uh, public crime, um, came to church and Ambrose wouldn't let him in um, because he, because he was unrepentant. Um, sent him a private letter, sent him a confidential letter, um, which, you know, if, if 1800 years later, we have the contents of a private letter, um, don't ever think that anything you send via email is a confidential <laughs> and these days, <laughs> but he wrote him a letter and said, uh, a very, very grieved voice and pastoral said, you know, what's been done at Thessalonica is unparalleled in the memory of man. You are human and temptation has overtaken you. Mm. Overcome it. I counsel, I beseech, I implore you to penance. You have so often been merciful and pardoned the guilty have now caused many innocent perish. The devil wished to wrest from you the crown of piety, which was your chiefest glory drive him from you while you can. I write this to you with my own hand, that you also may read it alone." And Ambrose was requiring the emperor to submit to the very public in in, uh, penance, uh, which was the custom for notorious public sin, which is the sinner would dress in sackcloth and stand outside the church, um, begging intercession of those. And uh, 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 Theodosius initially resisted, um, and finally with a counselor, um, one of his counselors, going back and forth with Ambrose. One story is that the counselor went to Ambrose and Theodosius followed kind of closely behind just to kind of listen to see what would happen. Um, but he did. He, uh, he exactly did that for several months, um, entered into penance for this sin, for this slaughter. And on Christmas Day of that year, um, that um, um, Ambrose brought him back into communion. So it was basically early church discipline, but it was the emperor. And this is, you know, this is he could have had him banished or executed, um, but instead, yeah, he said he was the only bishop he'd ever met who was truly worthy of his office, uh, and submitted to that. Um, Augustine writes that the the, the faithful entering the church uh, at the sight of the of the imperial majesty, abasing himself, were moved to tears. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the beautiful thing about this, I mean, there's all sorts of implications with regards to the church and and state, but in terms of personal. pastoral relationship that as theodosius repented and was restored to fellowship within the context of the church it also greatly restored their relationship and when he died um uh, a few years later he died in the arms of ambrose yeah Um, and and ambrose is part of his funeral um sermon he says he stripped himself of every sign of royalty and bewailed his sin openly in church an emperor was not ashamed to do the public penance which lesser individuals shrink from and to the end of his life he never ceased to grieve for his error
0: Hmm.
1: that's a beautiful picture of reconciliation uh, of of um, of ambrose stepping into what was a very public (laughs) and very typical circumstance um but calling calling the emperor to public repentance and the emperor responding in that Right, um, but his strong stand against the emperor in, in that way also helped pave the way for the relationship of the church over the state in the Middle Ages. Kind of set the stage for how those two would interact. Yeah,
0: and it's it's interesting to me in reflecting over that story how um, you know later in church history you you do have examples of um, abuses either way when at different points in history you have the church kind of uh, exerting great authority over the state. And sometimes that, that does not go well. It ends very badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then at other times the state exerting control over the church and that ends badly. Um, but it seems to me that there's such a valuable, um, lesson in this. And that is that, um, the, the key difference between the two was repentance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's so this could have gone very, very differently. Um, <laughs> yes. Had Had Theodosius refused, right? Um, yes. And so the the only thing that could have brought peace to that situation was repentance. And I mean, you talk about a life lesson, right? I mean, that's such an important mm, yes. principle for for all of us to remember. Um, and it it reminds me as well that the story of you know the prophet Nathan confronting King David. Yes. Um, that could have gone very differently. David was at a point where he could, he could choose to compound his sin yet again. Right. And, and try to resist Nathan who was calling him to repentance, but he responded with, you know, public repentance. And, and so there was some reconciliation, but it's just a, such a, a profound insight into, um, so many other parts of church history, so many other parts of history that, um, that could have gone differently had repentance been the response right um right so it wasn't
1: well that example with nathan is a really good one too from the standpoint that um neither nathan with david or ambrose with theodosius had anything to gain Hmm. from the situation this is not a power move it was not a political move it was not uh, an insertion of you know religious authority or opportunity but it was the prophetic pastoral role of bringing someone to repentance. Right. right. So even the, even the kind of the, the purity of that in terms of the, uh, the, the pastoral work.
0: Yeah. And, and seeing when, when you hear this story, uh, a lot of, a lot of writers comment, church historians comment and say that this, this um, event um, between um, Ambrose calling Theodosius to repent uh, had a profound effect on changing the relationship between church and state, and and yes, I, I get where they're coming from, but that to me uh, is it feels almost like such a cynical way of looking at that <laughs> event, you know, mm-hmm. um, th- that this really was not about politics. This was right. a this was a pastor being a pastor, you know. This was this was um, Ambrose seeing that Theodosius's soul was in great danger. Right. And it, so, yeah, I agree with you completely. This is not a political move. This is not a power play. I think it was the term that you used. And and that just changes everything. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really, really beautiful event. Um, but now we, we do have to—I almost hate moving on from that event. That's a, such a, a <laughs> fantastic story. Um, yes. But Ambrose— um, was a, i mean he was a staunch defender of the faith against the arians he was he was very brave um in in and compassionate in the way that he interacted with uh, with the rulers uh uh at the time including theodosius um he wrote pretty extensively and and still quite a few of his works are available today and and widely read today but we we have to focus in um, particularly with your expertise in music, let's let's talk about his musical contributions to the church because yes that that might be one of his most, if not the the most uh, lasting contribution, perhaps. So, um, so let's start with this one. Uh, sort of a specific uh, question about his musical contributions. Talk to us about Ambrosian chant because that, that obviously bears his name. Um, so let's start yes. with there.
1: What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks uh, yeah no problem the, uh, yeah <clears throat> yeah uh ambrosian chant also sometimes called melanese chant um is um it's a type of, of plain chant singing and that's the more generic term for what we think with regards to like gregorian chant um but realistically there there were um there are multiple uh, families of chant that were being developed in various areas of uh, as as the church spread. Uh, so there was uh, there was what became Gregorian chant in the more Roman area. Um, there was a there was a Spanish version. There was a, 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 a version in Gaul. There was a um, um, serum chant that comes out of uh, out of the area around Salisbury. Um, and so what um, what Ambrosian chant is is the area of Particularly around Milan, and uh, that came out of the writings and the ideas of, of Ambrose, particularly. So there's there's two things there's two things going on here. One is the um, very specific music and ideas that we know that Ambrose said and did and wrote, uh, versus what became Ambrosian chant, which is somewhat synonymous to the idea of Gregorian chant. Um, you know, Gregory did not write all the Gregorian chant. Ambrose did not write all the Ambrosian chant. Um, but some of the distinctive things about Ambrosian chant, and there are hundreds of hymns attributed to him, but really there's, we only know for sure. Uh, Augustine mentions four by name, mm-hmm. and, and there's probably another eight that we know for sure that he wrote. But he started a movement that then kind of bears his name. Um, but it's the only distinctive chant that was not subsumed by um Gregory's reforms of, of codification of, of chant. And so as, as, as Gregory and the Schola Cantorum, you know, as they began to collect and, uh, and codify all the various forms of chant that included Ambrosian chant, but Ambrosian chant remained distinctive. And there have been several attempts uh, over the last 1,500 years to impose um, Gregorian chant on Milan, and they've always resisted, such that finally the Church decided that Fine, you know, you can keep you can keep your distinctiveness. So from, from our ears, it's it sounds like it sounds like what we think of with regards to plain chant. Um, there are some differences, uh, and part of the differences are the fact that there are a lot of variety, um, and that Ambrosian chant can be short, it can be long, um, it can be uh, you know rather formulaic, or it can be very um, more through composed, you know, just you know, uh, working with a text. Um, it tends to have, um, more stepwise motion. So it has a kind of a smoother, more kind of undulating wave-like feel. Um, so there's fewer, fewer jumps. Um, and there are some differences with regards to range of the notes. Uh, but it's very similar. It's very similar to what we think of with regards to Gregorian chant with these few distinctive elements, but more than anything, just the sense of pride and place around Ambrose and around Milan
0: now um describe sort of the the role that it played or it's, or its its usage was uh was this form of chant uh, developed um predominantly for um what we'd call maybe service music or was it congregational singing or was it um so it, was that the role that it played was it um in developing congregational singing' Because I know Ambrose certainly uh was right. very
1: influential in that Right. It, primarily, it has to do with um, yeah, service type of music. Um, at the same time, though, he was also uh, bringing the ideas of, of hymnody to the West. Um, hmm. the, the Western church primarily had been singing psalms. And with his uh, with his knowledge of Greek and with his reading of the Greek brothers and the Greek sources, um, the idea of, of, um, of hymns, espousing theological truth, especially teaching theological truth in the in the face of, of Arianism, uh, he brought that idea into um, into the West, and specifically into Milan. And so that that part of the you know, Father of Western Hymnody, um, that part specifically was the congregational aspect, as well as the um, Ambrosian chant. But this is kind of the heart of how he revolutionized the use of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Remember I mentioned earlier, as they were uh, barricaded in the Basilica with uh, Justina's troops around them, that that period between Palm Sunday and Easter, part of what they did during that week, as they were fasting and praying, is that he taught them um, the idea of antiphonal singing, Uh, these these more Eastern ideas, instead of responsive singing, uh, which was more typical in the West, There'd be a single person who would sing something, there would be a response. Mm-hmm. And Tifnal is, is divided between groups and singing back and forth. And so, as they were, you know, biding their time, um, waiting to see what was going to happen, he taught them antiphonal singing, uh, which included the women, which was kind of a question of the day about what role should women have in, in singing and in worship, primarily because of, of um, uh, association of, with female choruses and pagan worship. Um, Including the women, antiphonal singing, um, but he taught them also melodies that he'd written, as well and lyrics which were you know, sim- simple, direct to the point, had a strength to them, uh, and had a, a had a metrical, um, rhyming um, aspect to them. So they would be they would be easily known, uh, and and learn theology. So this was this was. Uh, somewhat common in the East, but it was relatively unknown in the Latin West. And part of this is because of his ability to read the Greek sources right. and to bring these ideas to bear. And so then that gave his um, that gave his people, these congregations, the opportunity to sing together and to be uh, participants in the worship and to sing the theological truth.
0: So there's, as far as how that carries over into uh, later developments of, the, of of church music, there's really... There's not a whole lot that we mm-hmm. that we don't owe to to Saint Ambrose in in some respect, right? When it comes to church music, um, right? Yes, between yeah, the, the con- singing, yeah, congregational singing and and being the father of of hymnody as we think of it, and the mm-hmm. an, uh, antiphonal singing, that um, it's a very important contribution. One uh, one question that I that I did that I do wonder about when you mentioned the antiphonal singing as opposed to responsive singing. Um, how did that affect, or, or did it affect, uh, church architecture? Um, you know, I, <laughs> I know you see a lot of, a lot of older churches now, it, particularly in the Western tradition, designed with like the split choir lofts,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, or, and, and I guess you don't see it quite as much anymore, but it, that used to be pretty common. Was that Uh, where you have the choir lofts half facing the other half of the choir, right? And uh, was that part of antiphonal singing? Is that why that developed?
1: There's a beautiful um, relationship between um, architecture and church music. And uh, in terms some of it's kind of chicken and egg type of situation. Mm. Um, You know, there are ways in which uh, architecture influenced composers to think differently about music. There are ways in which... um, um, the needs of music influenced how buildings were designed, so there's a very really interesting symbiotic relationship between the two. Um, but yeah, that that idea of having side to side um, to the antiphonal aspect back and forth. Uh, but that, that's you know you can also do front and back and so you know, other other yeah. other ways as well. But that, that, that yeah that idea of the slit chancel does have that built in.
0: Well, this this conversation has has really shed a lot of light to me on why St. Ambrose, as as that one writer said, is considered the most talented Bishop of the early church, um, <laughs> a, a brave man, defender of the faith. And um, we're, we're still kind of enjoying uh, the fruits of his labor, um, particularly in the, in the world of church music. Um, um, so as, as we close this, this episode. Do, um, do you have any, any favorite writings or favorite uh, stories about, about St. Mm-hmm. Ambrose that you want to share as we part? And then uh, kind of a second part of that, um, anything that you would recommend to listeners about learning more about his contributions or, or work?
1: Yeah, this a couple of things. Um, yeah, you know, when you, when you read Augustine's Confessions, we haven't even talked about Augustine briefly. Um, Augustine was so, um, even as um, before he came to Christ, was was uh, Ambrose's rhetoric was so well known that he came to Milan just to hear Ambrose preach, not because he cared what he had to say, but how he said it. Hmm. Uh, And it was there that he began to really hear the gospel in a in a distinct way. And so when 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 Augustine is talking in in the Confessions about how I did weep at by hymns and canticles, he's talking about what ambrose was doing in worship and, and music in the church um and there's a there's a wonderful apocryphal story in which um when ambrose baptizes augustine as they rise from the water they they spontaneously uh, sing back and forth the words to the today praise um, uh praise you oh lord that's that's a not a unfortunately not a true story but a beautiful story uh, nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> um but there's um so some, that, of the, no. some of the best stories
0: aren't, aren't <laughs> true and, and don't have to be, you know? <laughs> yes.
1: But I think it's fascinating too, that we still sing Ambrosian lyrics too. Um, o Splendor of God's Glory Bright, uh, being one of them. Come Redeemer, uh, come Thou Redeemer of the Earth, uh, another one. So that even, you know, his influence, not only in how we sing, but also that we still sing, uh, his actual, uh, his actual texts. Um, one of the things that I appreciate, uh, from the standpoint of, um, of um, enjoying the quadrivium and the idea of um, music of the spheres and the great dance, is that uh, he picked up those same ideas of cosmic harmony and uh, the idea that God's cosmos is harmonious and musical in a very fundamental sense um, and embraced that, but with a Christian interpretation. So he'd taken those Greek musical ideas and, um, um, and translated those into the context of the church and wrote about that and wrote about how those elements meet together in a dance. Uh, so that, all those, all that beautiful idea of music of the spheres and the quadrivium, and, um, it's very much still part of what he's thinking about and writing about, uh, with regards to music. But I think there's, um, um, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite things, um, one of my favorite stories is, uh, um, that when Augustine left and, uh, and went to Rome, that, um. In, in Milan, Saturday was was traditionally a festive day, but Saturday was traditionally a fast day in Rome. And um, so when, when Augustine asked Ambrose what to do, uh, Ambrose wrote back to him and said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do.
0: Hmm.
1: And so that, that I, when in Rome idea, um, being hmm. being gracious in the, uh, within the context in which you are. Um, incidentally, he died on the eve of Easter. Um, Having completed a Good Friday um, services and uh, between sometime between Good Friday and Holy Saturday, uh, passed away in uh, 397. So it's kind of beautiful bookend of, of being ordained in uh, beginning of Advent and then um, passing into death and resurrection um, right right as right before Resurrection Sunday. Wow! Yeah.
0: Well, Greg Wilbur, thank you so much. This has been a a great conversation. I appreciate you um, taking the time to shed some light on the uh, life and work of St. Ambrose. Um, So appreciate you joining me today.
1: Certainly my pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Well, thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode of The Commons. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, Make sure and tune in next time for episode three. I'll be joined by obviously familiar guest, Wes Callahan, who was also the guest on episode one, but you don't want to miss this interview. We're going to be talking about the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, So stay tuned for that next week, episode three. In the meantime, you guys have a great day and we will talk to you again soon.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?